Hey, it's Ryan from The Art of Paying Attention, where paying attention is our proper and endless work. Well, hey, everybody, so good to be with you once again. I am so glad uh, to be with you because today we have another fantastic interview with Doug Howarth. And uh, Doug Howarth is an amazing guy who invented, come up, came up with this fantastic idea called hypernomics, which you will hear more in the show. Um, it's a way of kind of using science and using data to, to make good decisions, to predict markets, to, to decide if your idea is a good idea. Uh, whether you're buying multi-billion dollar parts for a plane or whether you're starting a small business, uh, these principles can, can work for you. And I, I just love Doug and his perspective and the way he thinks about things. And you're going to just love our, our show. And, and this is a lesson in really the art of paying attention and how Doug came up with this idea was him just paying attention to an interaction he had with his wife. I won't totally spoil it for you, but uh, let's just say it was an interaction of them buying a, a washing machine and uh, and just how he noticed something and how it led to a, a big idea. And this is a, a great example of what we're trying to do on this show is to help us pay attention to what matters most. And it, and it can take on many shapes and sizes. It can be just paying attention to our own health, uh, our own soul. It can be uh, paying attention to the ideas that might be percolating or things that we want to get out into the world or, or, or things that are important, um, uh, things we need to stop doing, uh, things we need to, to build out, whatever it may be. And so uh, we talk about that a little bit. It's just with Doug is, is, is how, do, how do you pay attention? How do you make that a daily habit, a daily, a daily practice? Because it's so important. Our, our attention is everything. And what we pay attention to is really what we give our lives to. Uh, and so, uh, so with that, um, just as depending on when you're listening to this, the, the, the beauty of a podcast is you can listen to this anytime and you may be listening to this years from now, uh, you may be listening to this months from now, so it might not be relevant. But one of the things I, I've been paying attention to is, is just we're right in the midst of, at least in the United States, we're in the midst of an election and don't worry, I'm not going to get all political, but, um, but, but it's, it's amazing in our day and age, uh, at least in these last few years, how, when these elections come along, it just seems to like bring out the worst in people. And people are angry, uh, people are opinionated, people are throwing people under the bus, people are attacking both sides of the aisle, um, people are, you know, just getting nuts and, and it's fracturing families and friends and neighbors and things. But my, my thing that I'm paying attention to is not really the political side per se. Uh, but really is to say how important it is to make good art, how important it is to fight bad culture with good culture, how, it, how important it is to, to fight bad art with, with good art, how, how, how important it is to, to fight bad leadership with good leadership. Rather than be venomous, ra rather than jump in the fray, rather, rather than just you know tear people down and throw them under the bus and, and, and get angry, is to say, well, what, how can I be a solution? How can I make something good in the world? How can I bring something good into the world? When everybody's screaming and complaining and cynical, how, how do I bring a little light? How do I bring a little hope? Um, how do I bring a little perspective? How do I bring a little, maybe what some have called a non-anxious presence into the world? Um, and that, that's what I want to be. I, I want to be a non-anxious presence. Uh, when everybody's screaming and, and falling apart, I want to be calm and patient and listen and be kind. And, and it's not always easy, uh, definitely. Uh, we all have opinions. We all think things should be done a certain way, especially in our country, how it should be led, how it should be um, run, all those things. And, and those are important things, of course. But who's going to be the, the non-anxious presence? Who's going to make good art? Who's going to make good poetry and write good books and make good music and, and, and bring hope into the world rather than just you know, want to fight and want to hurt other people. And so that's just my thought. That's just what I'm paying attention to. Maybe you're paying attention to those same things. Maybe you felt those same things, those rumblings under the surface. I'm not sure. Uh, but I'm really excited to, to talk to Doug today, Doug Howarth, because uh, he helps us pay attention to the things that matter, matter most. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing this with you. Um, I want to mention again, um, if you haven't heard this little blurb, we are offering some book coaching services and I'll have it in the show notes that maybe you've thought about writing a book. Maybe you're in the midst of writing a book. Maybe you need some help in writing your book. Uh, I have lots of experience in this realm. I've written 20 books, fiction and nonfiction. Um, and I'm offering some book coaching services. If you've been listening to the show for years, uh, since 2017, uh, I've interviewed some of the most prolific writers in the world. 
And that's really where this, this show began, is I wanted to share the little that I knew about writing and publishing and the creative act and the creative work and, and all that, that good stuff. And, and so now I'm offering some formal coaching where we get on a, on a call for 60 minutes or more and, and talk through your book, talk through your ideas, help give it some shape. I'll give some feedback, some critique, um, and, and just be your biggest cheerleader, be your mentor and, uh, help you get that work in the world. Um, because I know that was something I didn't have years ago when I started writing. It's just someone in your corner to cheer you on, to help you, to guide you, to lead you, to, to give you some, some direction. Uh, because it's writing, isn't just a solo adventure. It's, we need other people. We need a community around us that can kind of root us on. And, and sometimes what you realize is your family and your friends are actually the worst people uh, for this. Uh, they don't really care what you're doing, honestly, um, as much as they love us and support us. Uh, but someone that, that, that's been there, that understands, that can be in your corner. So check out the book coaching services. It's on my website under the coaching tab. And, uh, and yeah, if I can be of help and of service, let me know. And uh, so without further ado, let's get on to my interview with Doug Howarth. Well, Doug, so great to have you on the show. And as we were just discussing, obviously the show is the art of paying attention. So what are you paying attention to these days? Well, I'm paying attention to the same things that got us started in this business, which is looking at how people buy things and how people react to the market. <clears throat> That's basically how we've made uh, a whole business uh, based on our observations of what people do. Well, I was really excited to have you on the show uh, for that reason, because I think uh, as interesting as your work is, and we're going to talk a little about hypernomics, uh, which is a new phrase to me, and I'm excited for you to explain what that is. And I know you uh -huh. have a, a book coming out, um, depending on when this goes live, it could already be out, but um, that's the uh, genius of the podcast and the internet. But uh, right. uh, but we're so glad <laughs> to be on the show and, and help us think through... Um, really the, the foundational idea of paying attention because you came to some new fresh ideas about markets and data and making good decisions and business and life and things um, by paying attention. So let's, let's go back in the time machine a little bit, Doug, and tell us kind of where you began. How did, how did all this idea of paying attention and noticing things and where did that all begin in your home and your, in school, take us back. Well, it, it, it started in school. I mean, I got my degree in economics and they, they taught us the law of supply and demand and I never quite believed it. And it was always kind of percolating in my head. And then sometime later, decades later, I was out with the wife and we were buying a washing machine of all things. And a little bit more about my background. I kind of did a lot of work in what they call parametric analysis. So we kind of analyzed how things you know, would add cost to a project and things like that. So my wife's looking at this washing machine and she said, you know, I like this washing machine. It has more capacity than we have at home. And so I thought capacity versus price. She's, she's solving a two-dimensional problem right there. And then she said, also, you, you know, at home, we only have one delicate cycle. I want to have more cycles in our next machine. So I thought cycles versus price. She's up to a 3D problem. And so then we saw the next machine up the line in this particular series, and it had more capacity, more cycles, but it also cost a little bit more. So I asked my wife, I said, what about this one? She says, it's too expensive. We can't afford it. And then I realized that we were part of a, a total quantity term that was being pushed out by everybody that was buying was was adding another unit to the sales of this thing over the course of the year. And that's another point you could plot. So that was quantity versus price. And so I, what I realized was she looked at capacity, cycles, price, and quantity. She was solving a four-dimensional problem in her head. And that led me to go racing off and uh, see a piece of the house that had a kind of a T wall in it where the, the wall didn't completely go intersect the room, but it formed a barrier between the, uh, the one room and the other. And it let me see this four dimensional system kind of looks like a little bit of a T in which elements on one side are flat against the wall, which is the demand side and elements on the other side kind of fill the room and that's the value side. And I, I started working on uh, building 
a way to view this. So I, I went out and got some software and worked out a way to make a four-dimensional system. And I started writing papers on it and eventually got a patent and formed a company around it. So, uh, so in this scenario with your wife, I'm very fascinated by this, is yeah. what was the, so as you're seeing these things, as your wife's kind of explaining these things, I don't think she's thinking on the level that maybe you're thinking at the moment. I mean, she's thinking, I want a good value. Uh, I want some features that maybe my, my former washing machine doesn't have, but you're yeah. kind of, you're kind of taking it to another, another level. Now, is there, was there something, what was kind of the aha? Like there was something spinning in your mind going, we're missing something or we're not, we're, uh, did you feel like you were getting ripped off? Did you feel like we've kind of missed the whole thing? Like what, what, what was kind of your thinking? Well, yeah, we, we kept being told in the, uh, in, in classical economics that there's one downward sloping demand curve and one upward sloping supply curve and they intersect at one point and that point is equilibrium. So you can actually, if you model this, and, and I've done this in the book, if you go out and look at iron ore, you can find that there are iron ore mines across the planet. They're very prevalent in Australia and Brazil, and there's a few in China. And what happens is, is the price of iron goes up, the, the, um, the mining companies that have, the mines that have progressively more costs actually start to get online because they can afford to produce the ore at a, at a decent price. And then as the price falls, they go off. And so there is one equilibrium point in the world for iron ore, but iron went into that washing machine. And there's dozens of models right there in that uh, one showroom that I saw. And so it's not the case that there's one equilibrium point for just about everything else outside of a, of a, a commodity. And so I asked myself, well, what's going on? And it turns out that instead of trying to cram everything into two dimensions, we have to separate it into four dimensions. And when I was listening very carefully, when I was paying attention to my wife, I realized that she was, was studying this problem in four dimensions. And uh, she may not have realized it, but it turned out that, that she and everybody in, the, in, the, in that room and everybody across the world was actually working out a 4D problem in concert. And what's really interesting about this, Ryan, is that everybody <clears throat> self-aggregates their behaviors in a way in which it becomes mathematically predictable. So in a two-dimensional arrangement, if you've ever seen, this is kind of interesting, and I encourage our, our listeners to look this up, but if you look at a flock of penguins in Antarctica as the temperature starts to drop, the, the, when the, the sun's out, the, the penguins may be kind of milling about and they're not really forming any kind of shape. But as it gets colder and colder, what they do is they come and they huddle together. They form a huddle. And that huddle is pretty much continuous. It's kind of elliptical. And what happens is the penguins down in the middle of this huddle get up to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. It gets really warm in there. And then at the edge, it might be 40 below. And everybody takes turns going from the middle to the outside. But while they're doing this, they're maintaining a shape that's rather elliptical. The shape could change, but it's basically an ellipse. And so that's a two-dimensional arrangement. We see that happening in what we call the demand plane. And then if any of your, your people have been lucky enough to see a swarm of swallows, a, a sort sol as they call it, um, swallows make this big ball of birds that, that basically move in concert. And markets tend to look like a flock of birds. They can be either narrowly compressed, which means that they're they're pretty they're doing pretty much the same thing, or they can be widely dispersed. But in any case, there's a way to describe what they're doing mathematically, and so that's what we try to do is to describe that behavior mathematically. So what I hear you saying is, when you realize your wife was seeing in four dimensions and you were seeing in four dimensions, was mm -hmm. All the, the basically the narrative that you've been handed as far as economics, supply and demand, wasn't sufficient. Like you're, you're right. you basically exactly. were realizing there, there's more to this. The, this isn't yes. just as simple as, you know, uh, people want this. Is there enough of this? Here's how the cost works. But there, there's kind of another another level to the onion, if you will. And yes, that, another several years. Yeah, there's lots of other layers to it. Yes. Well, well I find this really interesting because I, I think what you're describing too is is really how I think any company begins. I think it's why people write books. I think it's why people mm -hmm. make art. I think we look out in the world and we go, 
Hey, maybe there's a different way of doing this. Maybe there's a different way of thinking about this. Right. Um, right. I, I loved you actually, uh, one of the, I was doing a little exploring and you were doing an interview and you mentioned, um, kind of just as an illustration, but the, the idea of Moneyball, which I think is a fascinating movie and yeah. a fascinating book. And so, you know, if, not to spoil the movie or the book, but basically the Oakland A's, you know, their, their GM figured out, maybe there's a different way to pick players and find players kind of in a mathematical right. way, um, to say, Hey, there's a different way to win games. It's not just the typical, you know, well, this guy, you know, can hit home runs. We just need a bunch of people that can hit home runs, but it, he figured out there were just certain kinds of players that, that they needed on their team to make, make this work. Um, which I think is a, is a great analogy of looking at something, looking at a problem and saying, maybe there's a different way. Cause we've always thought it's, it's, there's only one way to do this, but now obviously there's another way to, to think about it. Um, so when you were beginning to think this way, how did you go from, a conversation about a washing machine to I'm going to start a company around this. Like what, what was kind of, <laughs> <laughs> kind of the, well, the, the genesis of, of like, what was the, the, the angle, if you will? Well, the angle was that I, I had to prove it to see if this, see actually if people formed a, a, uh, in Marcus formed a, a, a mass of behaviors that you could predict. And it turns out that there's, there's a, uh, like, if you were to look at that, getting back to the penguins if you were to look down on the penguins you'd see that they they form a rough line on the on one side and another side and if you take the behavior say of buying a um, stocks for example if you pull up the stocks every day in the stock market the S&P 500 and you plot the total volume of shares on horizontal axis and you plot the price on the vertical axis you'll see that they and you plot it in what they call log space. So you basically compress the data. You'll find that that data looks a lot like a penguin huddle. And so that was one of the first things I discovered was that the stocks have an upper limit to the price. Oftentimes they have an outer limit, a lower limit and an inner limit. And it turns out that that becomes pretty important when you apply it to something like the market for say uh, business aviation. So I, I discovered that there was a outer boundary in the market for business aircraft. And so there was this billionaire out of Fort Worth that formed this company in Reno called Arion. And he was gonna build the Arion AS2. And it was going to be a supersonic business jet, gonna go a thousand miles an hour. And it was gonna carry about eight to 10 people. And it had a nice range. And so I looked at what the guy was doing. And so we like to talk about cost, value, and demand. And you have to get all three right. Uh, Meatloaf had a song back in the 90s, I think it was, Two Out of Three Ain't Bad, where he's, he was talking about his love life. Well, it turns out in, in business, you need to get all three of these things right, the cost, the value, and demand. And so Mr. Bass had a, an estimate to develop this thing, and we did some analysis, and the analysis of the cost looked like it was pretty reasonable. And um, so I said, okay, that's good. And then we did an analysis of the value, and he wanted to sell this thing for $120 million dollars. A piece and it turns out there's a lot of the market really responds well to added speed for business jets people are paying a lot of extra money to go three miles an hour faster than somebody else and so it turned out it was worth at least 120 million dollars but then you come to a demand and he was supposing he was going to build 300 of these things in a decade well it turns out that if you pull enough data and that's where the work is you pull data and you see what people have bought for the 10 years previous maybe go back five years before that and fi fi figure out the that 10-year period, you'll discover that when he started out, there was a limit for him, and that limit would have suggested at the price he wanted to build sell it at, he might have sold 47. So he launched in 2014 with 20 firm orders. And five years later, he still had 20 firm orders. <laughs> So I wrote a piece on the in, on LinkedIn entitled "Worth Every Penny, Not Enough Pennies." So he got the price exactly right, but what he didn't understand was that there wasn't enough money in the world for the world to buy that amount. So now I got an angry reply from somebody from the company. He said, "Wow, you're all wet. We just got this big order." Of course, he he didn't tell anybody that the order was all what they call options, which means if you build it, we will come. You know, if it's there for us to buy, we'll buy it, but not until then. And 
I said, good for you. You're still not going to make it because in five years, the thing had shifted from a limit of 47 to a limit of 63 at that price. And so the chance of them making it was about one chance in 40. And so I called them on it. I said, you're not going to make it. And six months later, they went bankrupt. This kind of analysis explains perfectly what happened to DeLorean 40 years before that when he tried to make the DeLorean DMC. He was trying to sell a car for $25,000 that was worth because he didn't have enough horsepower in it. He got the value of the thing wrong. The other cars that had that that were selling for that amount had twice the horsepower that he did. He had 130 horsepower roughly. He needed to have 260. And so he was also projecting he was going to make sales of 10,000. And there was the market was limited at that price to about 6,000. And so he missed up on, on several accounts. And so it turns out that the way to to crystallize the thinking is to actually do the research and then see what the research shows. So that's what I did. I started doing research on it. No, I love this because one of my, yeah, one of my questions. So my, my, <clears throat> my father actually has an aerospace background, worked for oh, McDon cool. McDonnell Douglas, Boeing. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. He was the CEO for Cessna for a while. And, oh, wow. Uh, cool. And so uh, as I was getting ready for this interview, um, my dad started doing some consulting and I think I can, I can name names. It's okay. I'll just say a company in an Asian country um, uh, that typically sell TVs wanted to get into aerospace. And so- I know who it is. Okay. Well, <laughs> as my dad was consulting, he realized a little bit of what you're saying is great idea, but the I guess the engine or whatever they wanted to actually put in the airplanes was just not feasible. Like it was just- astronomically expensive and you know he's kind of helping them kind of think through all the you know nobody's going to buy right. these things because you want to put a you know a cadillac but you can't sell it at scale if you want to you know have anyone uh, care about what you're doing so we understand your intent but um all that to say um it it sounds like what you're trying to do is actually mitigate risk a little bit is to say oh yeah right like, right, like, right like there's a mathematical equation that we actually whether it's stocks buying high ticket items like you know, jets, <laughs> um, trying to build a company, trying to, you know, whatever, um, is you can look at data and you can figure out like the data actually doesn't lie and it actually can help us um, make better decisions. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, that's exactly right. And in fact, to, to expand on that a little bit more, it actually gives you a map that we, what we like to say is it shows you what people want, don't have, and can afford. So what they want, don't have, and can afford. It's basically showing you open areas in the market where people have built stuff that's got more of a feature in this direction and maybe more in this direction and something here and something over there, but there's nothing in this open space in the market. And it tells you what to put in there and what features it should have and what you should sell it for. My wife and I were just talking about, I read somewhere that uh, for $55 million, you can go visit the International Space Station, you know? Yes. And, and so you think of $55 million for one person to go to space, that's obviously a certain demographic of people. Um, right. <laughs> and, and also my thought was, how do we get to that number? Like what, what who's sitting down to kind of crunch the numbers and go, this is how much it's going to cost for, to take you know, a person or two people to space, you know, the gas, the whatever. I mean, who knows? I mean, it, it's, it seems like sometimes markets can also be kind of, um, kind of woo woo. Um, I've been fascinated with, with the resurgence of baseball cards. Again, I was a baseball uh -huh. cards kid in the eighties, you know, and these cards were worth, you know, tons of money. Then they just basically went away and now they're back. Mm -hmm. But sometimes when you look at the, how they come up with these values, it, it's, it's not necessarily, it's some of it feels made up. Some of it just feels like we're just kind of throwing things at the wall and are they really worth this much? Or are we just kind of making it up? Um, so, so how do you kind of, what is your, um, you know, when you consult with people, how do you kind of help them kind of think through, um, not just what's trendy or what's hot or what's like, you could charge anything, but actually what's realistic. Cause like you said, in one of your examples was, Hey, the market could change in a year or two or inflation or whatever. Um, how, how do you help them think through all those, uh, you know, details, if you will? Well, for example, we're talking about getting back to aviation and I'll talk about a company that uh, if your father didn't work for it, he certainly knows. And it's a, an Asian company that wants to get into aviation, but there's this Asian company that wants to get into making electric aircraft. Specifically, they want to make electric helicopters or planes that perform like helicopters and may have wings and, and go a certain distance. And what we could say is, well, you know, the cost is going to be hard because it's hard to get the energy and power density you need in a 
helicopter like that. Because when you move to batteries, I mean, the, the gasoline engines are so much more efficient. But if you could do it, what we've done is we've actually produced a report that shows what helicopters are worth. And very interestingly, helicopters, as you might imagine, they're, you, you, you pay for how many people you can carry, how far you can carry them, how fast you go. But it also turns out that you are willing to pay more if the sound that you're, you're emitting is lower. And so we didn't have all the information about the number of decibels they were emitting, but we, had, we knew the blades. The more blades you have, so you know the big old Huey from World War II had two blades, it would make a big boom, 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 boom point was going through the air. And then if you might ever saw Magnum PI, you might have seen a smaller helicopter that had six blades. Well, that's an MD helicopter. And that, that doesn't make nearly as much noise. And it turns out people are willing to pay to drop the noise. And so you can try to run this, this trend that would suggest what I paid for a certain payload and speed and range with a certain level of, of volume. But if I drop the, the volume, I'm going to be worth, if I drop the volume, I'm going to be worth more. So that, this is something you can actually figure that the value of that out by using these kind of techniques. See, it sounds like, yeah, you're the, you're the guy who really is paying attention to all the little details, right? I think that that little noise part, it was probably not something that people are going, well, obviously it's <laughs> depending on the noise. I mean, I, I mean, if you're in the industry, maybe, but if you're, let's say you're right. a, a new manufacturer, you could come in and go, Hey, have you considered this? You know, here's what people are actually right, looking for. Right, right. That, that's like new data, right? Um, yeah. Interestingly, the, the, there's another thing I wanted to bring up about this whole thing about paying attention. So, um, I was, I was do, doing a, uh, I was doing a run uh, a few months ago and I got done with my run. It was off of on a trail someplace. And, um, I just decided I'd sit down and look at ants for a second. I'd never paid attention to an ant before. And so I saw this little red, reddish black ant, and it was <clears throat> kind of going, you know, zigzaggy, zigzaggy, zigzaggy. And I noticed him for a while, and he kind of did a, a counterclockwise turn. And he kind of went, he went around this turn. He went 360 degrees. And when he finished his turn, he was just a little bit further out from where he started. And then he did another 360 degrees. I go, wow, look at that. And then he did another 360 degrees, all while moving further away from his starting point. And what I realized in that instant was that this guy was doing reconnaissance. Hmm. And so I went home and I typed in ant reconnaissance into my search engine. And sure enough, this species of ant that with the, the characteristic counterclockwise motion does recon and what what is he recon what's he doing recon for well he's trying to find a place that's suitable for the new colony he wants to be away from the competition which is part of what we're talking about with the mapping and he wants to find a place that's dry access to food access to water so he's kind of these these ants and the species is at least 40 million years old this these ants are weighing out the market for a place to stay in the same way that you you would weigh out the how you how you bought your house or your apartment or whatever you're, you're into, and so it it turns out that this is a ubiquitous behavior that we can characterize here. So it's it's pretty interesting that way. Yeah. So let's let's follow that thread a little bit. Um, obviously, you've you know been around a little bit and built some things mm -hmm. and and noticed some things. Uh, what's what's kind of been helpful for you? I, I guess this comes from a place of. I, I do have concern. I think the, the more media kind of saturates us and, and it's not that oh, can, sure. media is wrong or, you know, Googling, you know, ants or whatever. Um, <laughs> but, but are there practices, habits, um, you know, when you're, you're even building this company, you're thinking about these things. I mean, what does it look like for you to kind of really hone in and, and figure these things out? I mean, you're dealing with formulas and, and equations and, and graphs and charts and companies and all these things. Like, what does it look like to you to for, to kind of slow down, to actually pay attention to, to the things you're trying to figure out or, or problems you're trying to solve? I mean, do you have actual like practices that you put into your life to, to make space for that? Well, um, that's an interesting question. I, I, um, 
you know, I try to make priorities for myself in the same way that, that people make priorities for their products. I mean, you know, I, I, I mean, I could spend a hundred hours a week doing this, but I do have a family. So I, I, you know, I'm, I'm prioritizing family. I'm looking out for my health. So I work out quite a bit and I try to make sure that I check off the health thing first thing in the morning so that I, I get that thing done. And then we, we have designated family times here at the house that we abide by. And, um, but then it, it's, for the personal life and also the professional life, what you what you discover, what I discover is, and what we will discover through the book and, and these people doing the the work that comes out of this is that the markets that you might be interested in actually reveal to you when you plot them where the open spaces are, what people want, what their limits are, and what you can do about trying to place something into that. And so that's the really fascinating thing is that. Um, so when we work for a client, what we like to say is um, our opinion is the last thing we're going to give you. In fact, we, we prefer not to give opinions. We prefer to give you data, intel, tell you there's there's space there are spaces here, and there's spaces here. This is crowded. This isn't. You can't go beyond this line. You shouldn't go underneath this line. You should do this or, and you shouldn't do that. That's what we try to tell people. And we get that information from markets that are spending millions and in some case billions of dollars per year to establish these points for themselves. And so what's great about this, Ryan, is everybody's collectively thinking in a way in which we can describe it. That That's the best way to put it. And uh, collectively thinking the same way within the variations. So in your uh, consulting work, uh, I'm yeah. fascinated by this. When people come to you, um, is there... Do they have fully formed ideas? Is it is it, hey, this is the company we're starting. We're selling, you know, widgets to, you know, middle-aged women, you know, or whatever. Um, you have those folks that kind of know like this is what we're thinking about. And they come to you and go, do they go, this is is this a viable product? Can you help us understand that? Or is it also people that are going, I want to start something. I'm not sure exactly where to go or where what maybe I know the industry, but I'm not sure specifically what it's supposed to be or what I'm supposed to build this around. And then they come to you, or is it kind of all the above? It's kind of all of the above. Um, there's um, there are cases where people have come to us and said, "We think there ought to be something in this this market arena here. Could you tell us what to build?" And, and we might bound the problem with data that exists on, say, either side of the problem, and then try to figure out where the open space would be in the middle. So it might be the case that somebody's trying to build something in a speed regime that nobody else plays. So, for example. That supersonic business jet there's a lot of jets that can go up to the supersonic limit commercial jets but no no commercial jet now goes beyond the supersonic limit like the concord once did and people say well why don't we have another concord well the concord they wanted to build 350 concords they they built 20. And people say it was a success well, it was a success for the airlines once they ran it but the people who built it lost their lost their money on it because they, they didn't build enough to clear it. So we look for the what people, they what they want and they don't have. Sometimes, sometimes they have a well-formulated idea and sometimes they just come to us with a blank slate, say, tell us what's, what's open here. Now, what we've been able to do too is uh, most recently, I uh, critiqued my former employer, Lockheed Martin. Lockheed built this, I, I don't know for your people that listen to what's happening aerospace and defense, but the Russians claim that they've got what's known as hypersonic missiles right now. A hypersonic missile is a missile that goes Mach 5, five times the speed of sound or better. The Chinese claim they have them. And so, well, we don't want to be left behind. So we went and hurried up and we got into the mix too. <laughs> and so the United States went out and had Lockheed Martin build something called the AGM, 183A, AGM stands for air-to-ground missile, and 183 was the, the next designator up the line. And there was this hypersonic missile that was going to go Mach 7 or 8, and it had a range of 1,000 miles. And the government bought one at $42.2 million, and the Congressional Budget Office said, well, we think we can buy 100 for an average of $14 million. Well, it turns out that there was a... The, previous 20 years, there was a limit 
that Congress had actually created for itself that said if you wanted to buy a buy a hundred, the price could only be one quarter of that approximately. And so the difference between where they where they wanted to be and what where they were gonna where they're proposing to go, because this was a really tightly correlated line, it was a hundred and eight standard deviations past the norm. Now, to put that in perspective, the average male height difference, the standard deviation is about two inches. So take two inches times, say, 100. What's the chance of somebody coming in that's 200 inches taller than you through the next door? It's virtually non-existent. Right. It's the same thing in this, in this market. That's not going to happen. You are not going to be able to afford 100 of these missiles at that price. And so people... I'll put this up on the internet. Well, what are we supposed to do, Doug? I said, well, you want a hypersonic weapon? You paid all this money to get, to get these machines, aircraft, stealthy. Take the stealthy plane and drive it. You know, right now the missile wants to go 1,000 miles to its target. Well, don't make it go 1,000 miles. Make it go 200 miles or 100. And then fire it from there and then take off. And that's the answer. You just, you want to make, if you want a hypersonic weapon, um, make the range shorter. Then you can afford enough. Otherwise, you're going to, you're going to be, end up, you're going to run out of bullets, as you could say. You don't want to run out of bullets during the military. So the, so the price was basically connected to the, the value or how long it actually could, could, yes. The price was directly tied to the range of this guy. Yes, mm. exactly so. And so they had way more range than they needed. Wait, well, I should say, They'll say that we need the range. They have way more range than they could afford. Mm -hmm. You can't afford that range. <laughs> right. That makes sense. You can't handle the truth. That's yeah. basically what right. it is. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, I think this is this is really fascinating. So the now obviously you work, you've worked with a lot of bigger, you know, I mean, most of us aren't buying multi-billion dollar right. know, airplanes or whatever. Um these principles apply. One of my things I was thinking about is in kind of the smaller scale. I mean, you think of a you know, a, a, you're buying a stock, you're buying a home, you're starting a small business. Um, it's same kind of principles. I mean, it's not, it's not really about how big it is or how, you know, fancy it is, but more just the, the principles behind it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's exactly fair to say, Ryan. Um, to your point, we've, we have applied it to the stock market and only buying S and P 500 stocks and only going long with no leverage, no options. We've been in the market for 46 and a half months and we're doing 1.9 times as well as the S&P 500, only picking from the S&P 500. And we've done better than Berkshire Hathaway too over that period. So it works for the stock market. There's a restaurant down the street that we like to go to. So when COVID hit, this restaurant that had a really big capacity here in California, when COVID hit, they let us dine outdoors at these, these venues. It's this place had seating for probably 120 or so inside, but outside it was, it was very constricted. They only had seats for about 30. <clears throat> and so we went into the restaurant and there's a line out the door to get in. And, you know, I took a look at their seating arrangement and I, I, we knew the manager there and I said, well, Kayla, Hey, would you like to make some more money? She goes, sure. What, what do you have in mind? I said, well, You've got three tables for six. You've got three tables for four. And just a couple tables for two. I've been coming here for years. I know for a fact that the average restaurant size, party size at your place is probably closer to two than it is to four or six. And it turns out when I did some more research, there's more than twice as many parties of two than there are parties of four. And so I said, well, so what do I do? I said, well, get rid of the part that, you know, she had three tables of six, and, and I think there were four people sitting at all three tables. Get rid of some of the tables for six, get rid of some of the tables for four, and put in tables for two. And she did that, and the revenue shot up 25%. Hmm. And so that's a very simple application of this principle. The stocks are another application. And back to your point about housing, and you can figure out the best buy for your, yourself in housing using this technique. So from our standpoint, there was a pretty famous mansion that was up for sale in Alpine, New Jersey, back in about 2010. It was called Stone Mansion. And its original price, if I got the number about right, was $69 million. Now, our analytics suggested that it should be priced closer to, I think it was $17 million. 
And so the, the thing sat on the uh, market for five years. Then the guy dropped his price to $39 million. Still no takers. And finally, after it sat on the market for about 10 years, it sold basically for the price that we suggested, just within a couple of percentage points. And so <clears throat> this technique applies to real estate too. So real estate, stocks, your local business, every, it applies to everything that we've, that's got it for which you can get enough data. Now, if, if I'm not mistaken, I think I saw on your website too, you, you guys have developed like software to kind of help yes, uh -huh. kind of mitigate some of the, you know, I would say mitigate the risk, but, but actually kind of walk through a process that you, you can spit out data. And mm -hmm. um, is yep. that something you guys use when like a client comes to you? Do you kind of help them use that software or just how, how's that work? Yeah, we've been using it mostly internally now, but uh, thanks for the question. We're, we're going to start pushing it as a, a sales product here very quickly. Um, we're just getting it updated to its later, latest configuration, but we, we use this to solve all of our problems. So what it does is it, it actually creates, it builds up 4D systems based on the analytics that we can, if you pull everything together, it'll, it'll, it'll draw a 4D system for you. It'll show you where the openings are in the market. It will show you how the market responds to the features that are given to it. It'll show you if you're buying, it'll tell you what's overpriced or underpriced. If you're selling and you already have something in the market, it'll tell you if your price is okay, too high or too low. If it, if it is too high or too low, it'll tell you what'll happen if you adjust it to the optimal price. And if you're trying to enter the market, it figures out the best places for you to enter the market where you have the least amount of competition. And so what's great about databases like this is, in fact, in my book that's coming out here at the end of the month, I, I look at business aircraft and I'm supposing that there's three groups that want to use a database to analyze business aircraft. People that are already selling the aircraft, they have one in the, in, in the, in the database, one, in the, one that's available for sale. People that might be buying the aircraft and people that might want to buy it, put a new aircraft into the market. It turns out that everybody can use the same database in different ways, but everybody can use the same database to actually answer their, their best questions for how to, how to approach the market. I like that. No, I think, and I, I think that's what's your work is so interesting is that you're not just using kind of nebulous information, but you're saying, Hey, well, you can actually crunch numbers. You can put in information. It'll, it'll tell you, you know, how, how, where to go, where to step, what, what's smart, what's not. Um, which I love. And so good segue, good job on that is about your book is you've okay. written, written this book and <laughs> right. it's coming out soon. And um, tell us kind of who's it, who's it for? What are you hoping to kind of get from it? You know, what, what, why'd you write the book? Well, I wrote the book. Uh, I remember David McCullough, the uh, famous historian said that he, he wanted to find out if I remember correctly about the Johnstown flood. And he said he went to his local library and got a book on the Johnstown flood. It wasn't very good. And he got another one. That wasn't very good either. And he said, you know, I just decided to write a book about the Johnstown flood because I wanted to write a book that I wanted to read. And then he just kind of evolved into that. And so it's, my evolution is a little bit like McCullough's in that I got my degree in economics. And I realized once I came up with the, these findings that what I, what we were taught wasn't correct. So I wanted to give people the wherewithal to do more things correctly more often. Uh, Clayton Christensen, uh, a Harvard professor, says 95% of all new products that are, that are attempted to be launched fail. Well, I mean, it's basically saying 5% succeeds. So what if the 5%, if you knew what you were doing, what if the 5% grew to 6%? Still 94% failure, but the other way to look at it is a 20% improvement in product launch. And so it's my, my intention for people to read this that are either building products that they could use this to more often get it right and also to put this into, into universities because what we're being taught now is only complete in certain instances. The laws apply to man. Remember, if anybody in your listeners are taking that class, you'll see just a, a two lines drawn, an X, you know, go, you know, downward sloping demand curve and upward sloping supply curve. And there's no data behind it. It's data-free analysis. It's based on postulates. And uh, a postulate is basically a hypothesis that somebody's asking you to believe without proof as a stepping stone to go to the, onto something else. 
Well, it turns out that you we have no need for postulates if the data actually exists. And it turns out the data exists. And so throw out the postulates, bring in the data, analyze it, and you get something you can use. And so the book is designed to show you how to do that for yourself. And so getting back to the money ball thing, there's actually an example there in uh, football. So in, in football, uh, one of the examples I have in the book was Rocky Blyer. Some of your listeners might remember that name from the past. Rocky Blyer was the uh, running back for Notre Dame in the late 60s. And he wasn't very fast. He ran the, the 40 in 4.8 seconds. And he was drafted by the Steelers. And he played a little while for the Steelers. Then he got drafted and he volunteered to go to Vietnam. And he, he basically got severely injured and got part of his foot blown off. And yes. You're good. Uh, and so um, he came back to the team and he was, he was trying to play for him. And the problem was that he wasn't at, you know, didn't have the same speed and, and, and weight that he had before. And so finally, after a couple of years of just fumbling about, he decided I was going to see what if I can get better. And so he worked out really hard, came back to the team, and he dropped his speed from in the 40 from 4.8 to 4.6 and basically went on to run for a 1,000-yard season and was part of the Super Bowl champ. And so in the book, it looks at the value of added speed. And so it looks at the value of added speed in much of the money ball fashion for wide receivers and it discovers if you can run the 40 in 4.4 seconds and you have a certain number of catches per year, you might be worth $6 million. If, no, if you run in 4.65 seconds, you'd be worth $6 million. But if you can run a quarter second faster, 4.4, you're worth... Two thirds more, you're worth ten million dollars, and this comes right out of the data. So it it basically shows people trying to enter a sport what the value of speed is, and so that's kind of a an interesting sideline to it too. So there's a bunch of vignettes in the book. It actually shows how COVID works in a 4D system too. Yeah, I like that. That I think there's always those little fun, um, you know, people people will theorize this is why this happened or this is why this right. team or this athlete. And then when you show data, I love that. Those little behind the scenes kind of things. Actually, it's, right, not as, yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit like Malcolm Gladwell. He's been doing a lot of, you know, work on this, you know, why are yes. certain hockey teams, you know, so much better? Well, actually the kids are older, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's, <laughs> it's data. It's not necessarily skill or, you know, um, right. mystery or whatever. Um, no, I love that. Um, well, Doug, this has been fantastic. And, um, and again, because of when this podcast comes out, the book might be live. It might not, but we'll make sure we put it okay. in, the, in the show notes. Great. And, um, where is the best place to find you find your book, um, read all your stuff. Cause I, I love, I just want to tell the audience too. one, I think gifts that Doug has is the ability to take very complex things and make them very clear. And I think if that's any in indication of what your book's going to be like, I think it's going to be a very, uh, you know, clear understanding of how to apply these principles. Cause I think sometimes you hear these things and you go, Oh man, that's not for me or that's too over my head, but I, you have a, you do a great job of actually teaching, oh, thanks. teaching, teaching what you're living and what you're uh, building. So, yeah, yeah, well, you can find me, uh, first of all, my name, my last name is H O W A R T H. So it's Doug Howarth. Uh, I've got a personal website. We also have the company website, which is hypernomics, H Y P E R N O M I C S hypernomics.com. The book is entitled Hypernomics, colon, Using Hidden Dimensions to Solve Unseen Problems. It comes out through Wiley. Had a meeting with the Wiley team today too, by the way, but uh, comes out the 29th. And you can find it on Amazon or you can find it on the Wiley site or you can find it in Barnes & Noble site. So coming out the 29th and Back to your point, what I do on LinkedIn quite a bit is I do little vignettes where I try to compress the data. And so I today I, I had a little piece entitled Holy Hyperplanes, Batman, in which I take Batman and Robin's approach to economics. Robin was having a hard time with econ. And I show him that if he if he just did a little bit of hypernomics, he could actually solve a pretty complicated problem. So I show how uh, we actually come up with the you know, how we can figure out what we can get, say, in a bomber for a certain amount of money. And if you try to 
get more bombers, you're not, you're, you're, if you try to have more features, you're going to have fewer bombers. It's as simple as that. Hmm. Same thing with the missiles. Same, same thing with anything that we want to build or buy. So, well, so yeah, it. I appreciate the time here, Ryan. This has been great. And uh, I especially like to tell you of your, your podcast. It's, I only got through to where I am by paying very detailed attention to people and, and events. So, well, Doug, yeah, thank you for coming on and thank you for helping us pay attention to some important things. And uh, it, it was a great uh, masterclass in paying attention. So okay. all the best to you. Uh, go get Doug's right. book and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thank you so much, Ryan. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, there you have it, my friends, Doug Howarth. Thank you, Doug, for coming on the show. Hypernomics. I, I love this idea. I love his perspective. I love his ability to pay attention. And it was just a little seed of paying attention that led to a big idea and led, led to a company. And he's serving and helping a lot of, a lot of people. And so uh, that, that's really what the show's about. The show is about how do we pay attention? How do we learn to pay attention? How do we slow down enough to pay attention to the things that matter most? And we never know where that idea will come from, where that little creative spark will come from. And sometimes just in this day when we're, we're moving at such a rapid pace, uh, sometimes it's the slowing down and the paying attention that we, we realize there's some, hey, there's some unhealthy things in my life. There's some things I need to change. There's some things I need to stop doing. Uh, and, that, and that's where it begins. And, uh, and so thank you, Doug, for coming on the show. Go check out all Doug's stuff. I just want to let you know a couple of things before we go. The ways you can support the show, just please continue to share, rate, and review this, this show. Word of mouth still works. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Uh, leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. It helps us get this show out into the world. Uh, sign up for the newsletter. Uh, every week I send out seven things I'm paying attention to. And uh, th those can be things I'm using. It can be quotes. It can be movies, books, recommendations, TV shows. Just things that have kind of inspired me, have made, made me think about the world in a different way. And, and, and I share those with you so that hopefully you can kind of take that and use it how you want and maybe inspire you to, to do good work and to live a good life, uh, whatever that may look like for you. And so get on the, the sub stack, get on the newsletter, uh, and you can stay updated on all the new podcasts and, and things I'm writing, things I'm doing, and hopefully that will serve you well. And then, uh, like I said, uh, if you are interested in book coaching, uh, we have some book coaching services. Get that book out in the world. Get those ideas on the page uh, to, to guide you, to lead you, to give you a blueprint on how to, how to begin and how to end and, and how to publish all that. So um, if you're interested in that, love to serve you in that way and help you in that way. Or if you just want to talk, you want to chat, you're working on a project, a different project, and want to kind of see if it's got legs, want to get it out in the world, uh, love to chat with you about that. So check that on out. That'll all be in the show notes. Well, that's enough about me yapping and chatting and talking and blabbering on. Um, so glad that you joined us today. And before we go, I just have one important thing to say is go make some great art with your life. I'll talk to you real, real soon.